So thank you for having me today. I'm sorry, this is a perennial issue for any short person, our podiums. They are my worst enemy. So I'm going to move around. Hopefully that you can all hear me well. Um, so some of the work I'll be presenting to you today is uh, lessons that we've learned, firstly, during the course of something called the Digital Transfer Project. So the project ran from about 2013 to 2016. Um, I joined the project in 2014. Um, and what we were trying to do was create a repeatable and scalable digital transfer process from uh, the point of figuring out what we keep and what we throw away to sensitivity review and then from to the receipt to National Archives and display on our website, Discovery, our catalog. So some of the discussions I'm going to talk about here are <clears throat> from those experiences as well as from some of my interactions with uh, members of the academic community um, and some of the research I've, I've continued to do um, at the completion of my doctorate. <clears throat> so what I'd like to sort of an overview is uh, digital record keeping practices and the impact this has had on our ability to display and make available digital information. And not only display and make available, but also figure out what is of value what comes to National Archives, as well as what is sensitive, because we have to close material that has any personal sensitivities, which we just heard about, um, and also any material that has international relations, uh, information provided in confidence, and some of the challenges we've run up against uh, as part of that. And part of this issue it sits with uh, the way digital records have been kept in early digital record keeping systems. Um, understanding what academics and historians want in a digital environment. And that's something we continue to try and do as part of the ongoing work of the digital transfer program. Um, because we need to know from the beginning, from the point we're going to go out to a government department, what you want so we know what to ask for. Um, so that when it comes to display and making it available, that's how we make it available through ca the catalog. And I'll talk about some of the challenges we've run up against as well around, again, related to poor record keeping, around date, and then how this affects uh, the ability of historians and historical research as a result of this. And then finally, opportunities and constraints to digital research in the era of big data. So picking up a few threads that we've been discussing over the course of the morning. So of course, uh, the ubiquitous uh, digital dark ages. Um, so it's not the end of the world. Um, I think that there are approaches. We've been working on digital preservation in National Archives for getting on to 10 years now. We established our digital archive itself in 2005. Um, and we've been working in the digital preservation space uh, at least four years prior to that. Um, there are, however, legitimate challenges here that we are running up against, uh, pulling up some earlier conversations around processing, scalability, reviewing, and making digital information available. Um, there is a lot of it, too much of it. I think some people would argue we have just enough. Uh, but you know, in terms of processing and making sense of it, um, there is just too much of it at this point. Um, and we don't have the right metadata. So information about digital records uh, to facilitate the effective and efficient review. And also poor record keeping has made it difficult to identify records of ongoing value. So before I continue, does everybody know what metadata is? Yes? Okay. No? So metadata, if you look in your Word document um, and you go to print sometimes and it has that little side sort of panel and then it says author, date date printed, date last modified, that's metadata. So information about the digital record itself, how many words it is, those types of things. So that's metadata. And it becomes important as part of processing digital records. 
So um, what we found when I was doing the digital transfer project, um, I was asked or tasked to do a business intelligence review in between 2014 and 2015. The goal of the business intelligence review was to look at the state of government digital record keeping. Um, it was actually the precursor for those of you that have heard of the Sir Alex Allen review um, on digital record keeping. It was just the immediate precursor to that. What I found when I was going out into government departments initially was that for every terabyte of information in an information management system, so in some type of structured system that technically should be managing information to enable government departments to retrieve it, to make decisions, there's about 10 terabytes sitting, however, in shared drives. Now, shared drives are um, early forms of record keeping. So before you had these sort of structured systems that could manage records and manage how long you kept information and create much better uh, metadata about the records, they were kept in shared drives. And shared drives have very limited amounts of metadata. So shared drives are like if you open your computer and you go into my computer and you start looking at my documents, it's those yellow manila, essentially, folders. And at that time, there was very little structure. So when these types of systems were being introduced, so you're looking at the early 1990s, they persisted up until the 2000s, so a good decade worth of data in there. Um, there was no controls. So you get very idiosyncratic file naming conventions. So my file, MISC, uh, or you get documents that are named t.doc, which I have seen in government which are not meaningful. If you're looking at these records and you're trying to, as a historian, trying to figure out what they mean, um, you can't. And so it, we have these, but so we have these large masses of like 10 terabytes, which is about 10 million records for looking sort of uh, very roughly on par, I'm thinking Word documents. So for every terabyte, it's about a million Word documents, roughly. Um, and so 10 terabytes is about 10 million Word documents. And how do you process all that? Sometimes it's just a running sequence. There isn't even a folder structure there. So what we had to grapple with was, you know, how do I understand what is a value? How do I begin? I can't open 10 million documents. Um, I can't, uh, and government departments don't have the capabilities and the resources to be able to open 10 million documents and make a value judgment on every single document. Um, so we started looking at e-discovery and data analytics, and I'll show you some of the screenshots from the tests that we did to be able to process over large collections of records, unstructured collections of records. Now, I said 2014, 2015, I started seeing one to 10 ratio. Um, since I've started working on the cross-government project, I'm actually seeing much larger ratios. So it's actually one to 20 or one to 30. So much, much larger unstructured shared drives, and sometimes even uh, you know, email servers that are 100 terabytes, and how do you manage all of that? Particularly as email has replaced correspondence, and so a lot of decision making ends up happening in email. So how do you capture that? How do you make sense of that? How do you follow the conversation? Um, and how do you, to help people understand that this document that may be sitting in this folder is actually related to this email chain, sometimes sitting in very distinct systems, and that this email chain actually approves the publication or that particular policy, and how do you remap the two together? Um, in information management systems, you have the capabilities to do that. There are functionalities that allow you to drag and drop, but people have a tendency to just wholesale drag and drop, so they'll just take their whole email account and put it in a folder, which, again, creates the same issues that we're running up against. Migration is another big issue that we have had difficulty with. So when you're in a shared drive environment, as sometimes you, pr you probably run up against this, you open a document, you haven't done anything to it, you've just read it. 
And what ends up happening is it pops up a, a little call screen. It says, do you want to save? And you think, oh, well, I haven't actually done anything. But yeah, just to be on the safe side, I'll save. But what that does is it alters something called the date last modified, which is the only date we have to go on in a shared drive environment. So what that means is, for example, my record was originally from 1996. I hit, it's now you know, November, now December 2016. I hit yes to that save. It inherits the date December 2016, when it should have been 1996. So what that becomes an issue for is when I receive the records of National Archives, we have very basic metadata that we collect, partly because of sort of the different approaches that government has taken around record keeping and record keeping systems. So I get the date 20, 2016, and I have, you know, I can't close that record for against that date. So it creates a lot of issues from a closure and value assessment point of view. But equally, it creates a lot of challenges from a historical research point of view. And we run up against it as well when we were doing the digital transfer project. In some instances, we would have a, a date in the actual file name title, so it would be when the document was originally created. So for example, uh, October the 12th, 2012. I have a date last modified of November the 15th, 2014. And then the actual text of the document, I have a date from 2013. So what is the authoritative date? And so it creates a lot of challenges as a historian because you think, well, when was this date, when was this document actually shared? When was the approval actually made? Um, and particularly when you have information across multiple platforms, how do you interrelate this? in order to find that authoritative date when a decision, or extrapolate at this point, an authoritative date of when something has happened and a timeline. It does also create a lot of challenges for our government departments. Because what that means is, when I start showing you some of the screenshots, it's, well, I know this event happened in 1996. So I'm going to start looking in 1996. But then they start looking, and then they only see material from 2001. And they're thinking, well, I know I have material earlier than that. But if you, if you look at the implementation of information management systems, what they realize is, but that's when my first information management system was implemented in 2001. And so it, when I moved all my information from the shared drive into the information management system, it inherited the date of when I moved it to the new system. So it's, it helps our government departments figure out then there are issues, and then how do we fix these issues to enable historical research. So those are some of the things we're trying to grapple with the National Archives. And we are also looking at ways of assigning certainty percentages or levels of a, a sort of a certainty around dates, the date that you're looking at, how accurate is it, and how trustworthy is it. So we're starting to look at ways of uh, trying to measure this and manage this. So just to give you a sense of, you know, we did go back to a lot of our uh, sort of research and academic community when we first started doing the project. And I presented at an academic day and I asked the question, I said, these are the way we are presenting our records. Is this helpful? Radio silence. I, I, I received no feedback. Um, and so it was, we've been sort of operating, if you will, a little blind because we don't actually know what historians want, but we have to acquire and manage the public record. And there are more, there's more and more information coming in our direction. So we, we constantly try and go back to the academic community and to our other research groups uh, and users to be able to identify, well, is this enough? Do you need more? What do you need? And looking at then how do we acquire it? Can we acquire it depending on how this information is managed? in order to enable historical research and other types of research as well. So this is an example of, you have an example of an open record. Uh, and there you have perfect example of poor file titling. Um, 
And then you have an example on the other side of equally poor file titling, but of closed record and some of the information that we present around closed records. But this is where the date last modified becomes incredibly important because we, we calculate closure against that date last modified. And I do not want to be calculating closure. Someone who's worked in the, I've worked in civil society. I work particularly in the developing world where information and access to information is incredibly important. So from a, from a sort of social justice perspective, I feel very strongly about ensuring that what I'm calculating against, what I'm receiving and then calculating against, is an accurate measure of what the actual records are or when the date that they were created. I don't want to be closing them for an extra 10 years because I have a, a, a different date last modified than the actual contents of the record. Sometimes it can be difficult to identify this. But where we know, we push back. And the, we also have the Advisory Council on Records and Archives, which approves closure at National Archives, to be able to push back on these types of things as well. So the impact of born digital records. So yes, this is uh, an, two examples of poor file titling, if you will, or interesting file titling. So one of them is uh, Binder Barbie. Uh, and it was part of a promotion. So the collection you're looking at here is actually a National Archives collection. We have, we were processing some of our own records as part of the digital transfer process. Um, and we were, we had part of our collection was collection care. So this was part of a sort of a public engagement set, set, section that they were sort of preparing and a pamphlet that they were preparing for uh, the general public around collection care and what it is that they were doing. On the other side is a pile of pink and hairy uh, ones was actually a, a set of records, or a set of, uh, as you can see, a set of uh, bone volumes that had a very pink and hairy mold on them that they had to restore. So the file title here is perfectly valid. It's about what was found on these records and then the subsequent sort of cleaning up. But you know, a lot of organizations don't think about, uh, even now when we start talking to our government departments, the impact of poor, poor file titling. There is equally the flip side of this when you're dealing with such large volumes of information is that you're not going to be able to fix all of this. And nor would I ask them to fix all of this. In many ways, as an archivist, uh, it's about the integrity of how the record was created. So just leave it as the way that it is. And you know, then it's, it is, it's a testament of how this information was created and how it was titled. It's not always the best. I have seen some much worse file titles. But it does show the example of poor, particularly if you're looking for something meaningful. And they, they've got something like lunch on the email title. And it's actually in the lunch sequence well, let's discuss this policy. Well, I've already approved this policy, and that's your record. Well, lunch is not a particularly meaningful file title. But it, so it makes it very difficult to compute, or at least initially, to find if you're doing a manual open and closed process. So extracting meaning. Um, so two things we looked at. Uh, because we had such a challenge around how do I find information of value, and then how do I sensitivity review it? We looked at something, uh, some of the systems that could do something called categorization and clustering. So uh, the categorization is to groups uh, conceptually similar digital information uh, together and spot patterns. And clustering is based on existing pre-man-made categories, such as file plans. Sometimes you can also use the, full, uh, the uh, format of a document. So if you have, uh, for example, a good format of document would be uh, some of the forms you fill out uh, for, say, your driving license would be an example. You can actually feed it into the system, and then the system will c bring together all that information into a cluster of data, because it's all related based on the form of the document. 
and email visualizations, which become incredibly important uh, for us in terms of trying to put together the story again, trying to figure out where the meaningful records are. Um, and they have some of these systems. So we looked at uh, e-discovery and data analytics. Uh, in particular, we looked at three types of algorithms, latent semantic indexing, latent Dirichlet allocation, and relational databases. Um, and in order to see sort of how well do they compute, how quickly do they compute, scalability is a big issue for a lot of our government departments in terms of quickly processing information in order to make it, uh, to review it and make it available as well. So we were looking at how feasible this all was from a government department's perspective. Um, and a lot of these systems have the ability to uh, process large collections of information and compute across collections. So some in the academic community have used Google Ngram to compute around, around large digitized uh, book collections. And it has come up with some really interesting results. Um, I've forgotten who the researcher was, but he computed over some, uh, some French text, I believe 17th or 18th century, and looked at the use of smile and how it had changed over uh, a period of time. And what he related was that in, in sort of the earlier text, smile was poorly viewed. And then in later text, it was, it was seen as an indication of uh, joy and happiness, as we would relate it now. And he, he actually correlated that to the improving of dentistry and dental care as, as a, in France at that particular point in time to show why the sort of connotation of smile had changed across that, those two time periods. So it does have meaningful applications. There is, however, a danger sometimes, I think too much, and this relates to earlier points, to rely on the algorithm, to rely on how the system is processing, because it's a bit of a black box. If you don't understand how it's processing, and it's equally something I challenge when I'm at TNA with my government departments, is if it's not processing the way that you want, then we need to find some other way to process, but we have to push back on the algorithm. We can't simply accept the findings and the renderings that are being put forward. Because the algorithms we're looking at were very much designed for e-discovery and legal purposes. And whilst they are helpful, they should not be seen as the authoritative voice in this process. There, A, there has to be human interrogation, so we advocate very much technology-assisted review. But equally, there's a pushback around the meaning that these algorithms bring, whether that's Google Ngram or anything else. They are not agnostic. Um, they're not agnostic. And so we have to push back on also and understand what worldview are they presenting, and is it meaningful for research? Um, there's also an issue, too, that you can become very superficial with the conclusions you're deriving from these computations. Google itself is guilty of this. If you've heard of the Google flu comp uh, analysis that they did several years ago, which was a, one of the early big data exercises, and they were trying to co compute the instances of flu in, I believe it was the US. Or, and what they did was uh, the CDC, the American Center for Disease Control, actually they were, when you compare it to the Google results, the CDC had very low results. And everybody's thinking, well, Google's got these massive results. You'd think there was a crisis in flu epidemic. And what it was actually doing was they were logging every time somebody put flu. So if it showed up on the news, everybody would type up flu symptoms to be able to see if they had the flu. So it was inflating the results. But that's what happens when you simply rely on the algorithm to do the thinking for you. And there is equally that danger uh, in historical research if we rely too much on these algorithms as part of the process. But some, in some ways, it's equally that you will have to rely on some of these systems to compute the volume of information 
to be able to do research. So it's balancing those two aspects as well as some of the shortcomings in digital records in order to enable digital research. So some of the things that we looked at uh, were sort of looking at a split by format and date in collections, which we found particularly helpful, again, with a caveat around date. Um, but equally, if, if the date has been corrupted in any way or changed, and if you know your collection well, or you understand some of the contextual information that you need to be able to identify what you're looking for, then you'll see that there is an issue and then be able to hopefully fix it. We also looked at understanding a collection at a very high level. So this shows levels of duplication. And in a lot of, as with most digital data, there's about 50% duplication we're seeing um, around some of the share drive collections that we're looking at. Um, but equally, it gives you a high level of understanding of the collection. So if you're looking at this from a historical research point of view, um, you know, what, what formats are you dealing with? And if you're looking, if they have a conceptual analysis model, then how is this computing the sort of thematic headings, if you will, within a collection? with the caveat that you have to remember what is it that the algorithm is doing. We found visualizations really helpful. Um, so these are two, uh, two pieces of software we looked at. One is the honeycomb, so it has very high-level thematic headings, and then you can drill down all the way through. The far side was an attempt by one of the uh, companies that we tested with to at least provide an initial uh, sort of thematic heading that they saw in the records. It's not particularly great, but it was one of the first attempts, the uh, first pass in that. And that's something else. Some of these uh, analytics tools rely on people to be able to code the data as well in order to render these types of visualizations. This is another example of how we try to look at email presentation. Um, so uh, Fran Baker did something similar at the Karkin, with the Karkinat Press records at the University of Manchester because what they saw was there was a drop-off in the correspondence, paper correspondence files. So they were wondering, well, what happened? Where, where, where did all of our correspondence files go? And then what they found was that it was actually in the emails. So what University of Manchester did was they started analyzing the emails and they actually used something called EPAD. Um, in order to do that, to be able to trace who's speaking to whom over what particular time period. From a sensitivity review point of view, it can be really helpful because what it enables us to do, we make certain inferences about the relationships and this potential sensitive information that may be sort of transiting back and forth. So for example, if the keeper of the record is, speaking, is sending an email to a permanent secretary, it's more likely to be sensitive than if the keeper of the record is sending an email to everybody with, at the National Archives. Um, and so it allows you from a very high level to uh, try and make certain inferences around the records. And with digital, the inferences have to be at that very high level because you just don't have the capabilities to drill in. How much time do I got? A few more minutes. So, uh, so I've touched uh, a lot on this. I think currently there are few, I mean, some of you may quibble with me, there are a few historical uh, history programs and even fewer historians that are engaged in digital research. And for me, from a, as someone who works in the digital area, to be able to engage, I know that I have colleagues at the uh, Cambridge University in the digital histories department that I've been speaking to a lot, but being able to engage more with uh, the historical community, whether that's paper or digital, to help me understand what are you looking for? What do you want to see? And equally, going on TNA's website, we have, we have born digital records collections from Welsh government, from National Archives, from Companies House, which is one of our first data sets, um, from the Penrose Inquiry, Evidence Records Inquiry. Look at them, tell me, and feedback to us. Tell us, is this enough information? Is it not enough information? What do you want to see? 
So quick conclusions. Uh, so record keeping practices will impact how digital records are made available and accessible for research. There are some things we will not be able to fix where we will have to rely on computing and computing over the records to deal with some of the record keeping issues that we are, uh, we are running up against. Technology offers many opportunities, but I think the historical community needs to engage to understand potential constraints and how to mitigate these when conducting research. I think, as I said, there is that danger of relying, over-relying on the algorithm and not questioning what it is that it's doing. I think work with archivists, information managers, and data scientists to help us understand what you need from digital records to carry out research. What metadata do you want to see? Uh, what information about software and their algorithms do you, uh, do you need to understand to know how the data that you've put in has been processed? Because we talked a lot about TNA, about, well, do we just simply make a tool available? But then we got a lot of pushback saying, well, how do I know what your tool is doing has integrity or is it processing the information the way that I want? And so it's also about opening up some of our digital collections uh, in order to allow other tools to process it, where, the, where historians and researchers have a greater capability of controlling how the system is working and then what the output is for their own research. So that's kind of broad overview of some of the work and some of the thinking that we're doing at National Archives.